Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 25th of August with me, Ian Welsh. Coming up are the final in the series of reflections from the recent Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in New York City with Innovation Forum founder Toby Webb. He spoke with Tala Khan from the Pakistan Environment Trust and Karima Huda from Lumen Earth about what they were taking away from the two days of discussion and debate. First though, it's a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. Voters in the South American country of Ecuador have backed a resolution to ban new oil sector development in the Yasuni National Park in the Amazon via a referendum coinciding with the first round of voting in the country's presidential election. The park is extremely biodiverse and also home to indigenous communities that are living in voluntary isolation. With nearly 60% in favour of banning new drilling, the ballot is the first such democratising of resource extraction limits, keeping over 700 million barrels of oil in the ground. The terms of the resolution require the government of Ecuador to oversee the halt of operations in the protected area and for infrastructure to be dismantled within a year. New research, published in the journal One Earth, has criticised the US and the EU for scale of subsidy for the meat and dairy sectors despite warnings from climate scientists that animal-based agriculture should decline in developed economies if global warming limits are not to be breached. The study found that subsidies for meat and dairy were 1,200 times higher in the EU and 800 times higher in the US than those for the plant-based protein sector. The Stanford University researchers say that the huge discrepancies are due in part to the significant and successful lobbying the long-established meat and dairy sectors carry out to maintain existing beneficial rules and subsidy schemes and to prevent similar subsidies to plant-based proteins and cultivated meat companies. The study calls for a more level playing field and suggests that meat and dairy businesses should be held to account for their full environmental impacts. A number of animal-based protein and alternative meat companies have, of course, been reported to be in financial difficulties as the sector matures. Certainly, these businesses are some way from being able to challenge the financial clout of the traditional food supply companies. Water resource use is an ever hotter topic and new research from the World Resources Institute says that at least half the world's population has to cope with high levels of water stress for for one month a year and 25% experience extremely high water stress on a regular basis. The new numbers are part of the Aqueduct Water Risk Atlas that WRI has produced since 2011. The relative water stress is a measure of the proportion of a country's water supply that's being accessed. If a country's demands are 80% or more of supply then it is classified as under extreme water stress, over 40% classified as high water risk. WRI had called for businesses to work towards science-based water targets and for the finance sector to offer innovative financing products that encourage better water resilience. When he was in New York at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference, Toby Webb spoke with Tala Khan, Chief Executive of the Pakistan Environment Trust. Well, it's been a fascinating day. This is the first time we've run this conference in the US. We've been running it in the EU for 10 years or so. And as someone who's coming to this with fresh eyes from an emerging economy, what have you made of what you've seen and heard today, Tala? It's really fascinating. I mean, it's my first day attending a conference like this in the US as well. Most of the conferences I've attended so far have been in Europe. The difference between the European brand's perspective and the American brand's perspective and the audience here has been quite interesting. And, and there are a bunch of things I'm seeing happen today. I think one of the things that I clearly saw was there's a lot of focus on downstream in the US, whereas the conversation in Europe are mostly upstream in terms of how can we decarbonize our supply chain in general? How can we think about the regulation that are happening over there? Today, in this conference, the discussion has mostly been on circularity downstream. How can we create more circular business models 
downstream? How can we take back and reuse some of the products that are out there? And that's been really fascinating to hear as well. I think it's really interesting to think about that angle. Mm. It's a different angle to take on things. The other topic that hasn't come up enough today, but again, it comes up a lot more in Europe, is around just transition. And it's natural to hear that in Europe because they're thinking upstream and that's where most of the labor and the workforce gets plugged into the industry. Yeah. So there's a lot of conversation around just transition and that is always on everybody's mind. Over here, that wasn't a topic of concern. Mm. I wouldn't say concern, but that wasn't a topic that was discussed a lot as well. So really interesting contrast between the two sides. But the good part is that everybody's talking about this topic and everybody's concerned about it. I mean, we're all going in the right direction. It's just that we're having different conversations on the same topic, right? I mean, as we all know, the US doesn't have the same regulatory drivers, culturally different, so on. From a Pakistan point of view, you're doing some really interesting work. Your organization sort of sounds like it looks after what biodiversity and wildlife. Yeah. That's what I assume from looking at it. But of course, whilst that is incredibly important, you're doing something else. Yeah. So exactly what are you doing in brief? One liner about what we are trying to focus on. We're trying to solve those climate change problems in Pakistan that nobody else is daring to solve. In a nutshell, that is our mantra, that is our purpose, and that's our mission. How it links to the discussion we had today is, uh, is twofold. One, we are convening a national net zero coalition in Pakistan in which we're getting the leading private sector companies to make net zero commitments as step one and then help them decarbonize. Most of our members today in that coalition are textile manufacturers in Pakistan. So essentially, currently we represent around 26 of the textile companies in Pakistan. They would represent somewhere around 50% of the textile exports from the market. Textile sector itself contributes around 50% of exports from Pakistan in general. And 60% of our labor in Pakistan is linked to the sector. So a huge implication for our economy in general. And a that's huge reason. bigger than agriculture. That's amazing. Well, that's bigger than agriculture in isolation. But again, in the 60%, a huge part of the, the agri is also connected to the sector. Cotton, through cotton and everything, right? So there's an overlap as well between the two. And our interest primarily in conferences like the Innovation Forum and others is driven by the fact that we want to bring the Pakistan perspective and narrative to the table mm -hmm. and engage the audience in that perspective, essentially. So that has been the goal to attend this conference and engage the audience and get them more involved because Pakistan in isolation cannot yeah. solve this problem themselves. So what I like about your initiative is that it's very bottom up. As someone said today in the sessions, you're not sat there waiting to be told what to do yes. and then have 17 different standards enforced upon you, all of which you have to pay for the audits again. Yes. You're actually creating this organically and then you're going to market with a positive lower carbon proposition. That doesn't sound like a very easy thing to do. So what are the problems with doing that and how have you overcome them so far? And what are the barriers to getting that right? Yeah, no, it's not easy at all. First of all, the step one was we, we reframed the problem in our own minds and within Pakistan as well. So the typical conversation that happens in general in the whole climate change arena is that, oh gosh, our emissions are so high and we need to bring them down, otherwise the world will be destroyed. I mean, I'm not gonna get into that debate in terms of whether climate skeptics are right or what, what the narrative is. The way we frame the problem in Pakistan is that, listen, in our country, we are facing the burnt of climate change through the floods that happened last year, yeah, the heat waves that are going to cut through this year, all of that. On the front lines. On the front lines of it. The second thing is our economy is so reliant on textile that we need to grow our economy and protect our jobs in this whole space that is happening. So essentially, when you frame the problem in that way, it makes all the more sense to make greener products and more sustainable material out there, right? There's an economic case for us as well. The challenges we face on that is that in Pakistan, when a brand comes in and they want more greener products, there's certain things that the manufacturers can do, but there's tons of things that are much more complex in the market. For example, the energy system in Pakistan. That's the issue that not just Pakistan faces, Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, all Coal. these countries face it. Coal, 
the use of fossil fuels, the grid not being too clean, how do you clean the grid, how do you implement those policies, big challenges. And nobody knows the answers to these questions essentially. Mm. But what we're doing is right now, we're trying to convene all of the suppliers together on one platform. Just to give you a one interesting example that really gets everybody excited is that one of the things we do is all of our 26 member companies who are ruthless competitors. And big, give us an example of how big these companies are. Yeah, so I'm talking about the biggest company in their exports around half a billion dollars worth of textile products to the world. Combined, these companies contribute at least 50% of the denim products being used globally. Okay, so that's so scale. That's, that's scale. a lot of scale, right? And a lot of imp impact they have in the market. In home textile, Pakistan textile sector is among the top five exporters in the world. And most of our companies are in home textile as well. So major players. So major players. You were saying before I interrupt. But these players, these companies who are all sitting in Pakistan, traditionally, don't talk to each other that much. Okay. Because they're compared to the market, they're selling to the same brands, and they want to get a big market share. One thing that we did as a starting point was we started to get them together every couple of months in one of their facilities and get their folks to talk to each other around sustainability and decarbonization mm -hmm. so that we can exchange knowledge and identify those problems that everybody's facing. Was this not being done through any other platform? This wasn't done through any other platform. And a couple of reasons why. Not because people didn't think about it or didn't have the capabilities, but because if you bring a platform together, we're just talking about trade around textile in general, the agenda is so big and wide it's really difficult to have a coherent conversation. Because you've got so many parts of the value So chain. many parts of value yeah, chain, yeah. so many parts of discussion. Our agenda is solely focused on decarbonization. We want to help companies reduce their emission. Mm -hmm. So that helps narrow down the agenda very clearly. And that agenda is very pre-comparative. Everybody wants to decarbonize. And if in Pakistan, the textile sector doesn't decarbonize, and just one company does, the yeah. sector will still lose. But how can you do that if you can't control the grid? I mean, energy efficiency in factories will only get you so far. Yeah, but here's the interesting thing, right? For example, very practically in Pakistan, one workaround that you have is you can buy renewable energy certificates while you're waiting for the grid to be clean. But Rex renewable energy certificates, if you buy them, you can offset some of your emissions today while there's a policy that gets in place and you okay. can use it. The transition. Approach. The transition approach. In Pakistan, there were no renewable energy certificates. Mm -hmm. So what happened is through these discussions, we've engaged the suppliers and coming them together, they identified that as an, as an issue. Mm -hmm. That we need renewable energy certificates in Pakistan for us to offset our emissions. We as Pakistan Environment Trust, we ended up approaching the global body that issues that license to different companies in every market. And we became an issuer of renewable energy certificates in Pakistan to help solve this problem for the members. Where are the carbon reductions happening? The carbon reduction is happening through those power plants in Pakistan. Okay. So like the wind power and renewable energy plants that are set up in Pakistan. Okay. But right now they're selling their energy to the grid. So we can issue those certificates against the energy being put in the grid and the manufacturers can buy those certificates to claim those emissions on their books. Okay. So that helps solve that problem or a workaround for that problem. You're it's financing the cleaner energy transition. Financing the cleaner energy transition, right, through right. these certificates. Okay. That solution did not exist in the market because nobody was working on it. Okay. Us being a non-profit without owning a factory, don't have an agenda, yeah. we could easily play in that pre-competitive space. Only someone in and from Pakistan could probably do something like Exactly. That. Only someone in Pakistan can do that. Okay. And I think that the reason why that is also exciting for brands is yeah. because if I now we've formed a partnership with Inditex and Bestseller. When I went and met Inditex globally in Spain, the discussion we had with them was that they spoke to us as a peer-to-peer. -peer, mm. And the challenge for them, and I'm just giving them as an example, there are many other brands that face a similar problem is that when they look at their supply chain, they're looking at 500 companies in Bangladesh, 300 companies in Vietnam, 200 companies in India, 100 companies in Pakistan, I'm just making numbers up. It's very difficult for them to have so many conversations. 
in different contexts. Mm -hmm. Suddenly they had one market and one yeah. entity that they can speak to and engage with on that whole market, right? That was exciting for them. Mm -hmm. And that brings me back to your point that you made earlier, which is yeah. suppliers came together and found a solution through which brands can engage with them. And that's exactly what I believe other markets need to do as well. So where's next for you guys? You've clearly made good progress in the last two or three years. What happens now? Our goal is in the next three to five years, we want to decarbonize Pakistan textile sector by at least 50%. And we want to mobilize a billion dollars in supply chain decarbonization. To do that, what we're doing is, on one side, we're trying to expand our footprint in terms of the number of companies that we represent. And we're trying to bring more and more textile manufacturers into our ecosystem so we can help them measure their emissions and set their science-based targets, mm -hmm. the goal for them. The second thing we're doing is we're identifying those sector-level projects that we can launch to help companies decarbonize. So, for example, right now we're in process to launch a national biomass supply chain in Pakistan. Once that supply chain gets up and running, we'll help raise finance for that as well. The supply chain and the biomass can become an alternate to coal being used in these manufacturing facilities. That will help reduce emissions. Beyond that, we're looking at policy-level initiatives that we can drive within the country as well by engaging the policy discussions that are happening in Europe and the US and trying to bring some of that topic to the local government and try to get those through so that we can sort of influence policy and all of that. With the combination of these and engaging brands, we want to mobilize finance toward these projects and activities to get to our overall goal, right? Well, lots to do. Hala, thank you for your time. Uh, Innovation Forum would love to support you in the journey ahead and look forward to hearing more about this at the conference tomorrow. Thanks so much, Toby, and it's great to be here and talking to you right here. Finally, where do people go to find out more about Pakistan Environment Trust? Look us up on our LinkedIn, Pakistan Environment Trust LinkedIn page, where we post all of our regular updates. Okay. And you can look our website up as well, www.pakenvironment.org. Great. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Following the conference, Toby also caught up with founder of Lumen Earth, Karima Huda. Karima, why don't you tell us about Lumen Earth and what you've been up to for the last few years? Listeners might be keen to know very briefly about your history before that as well. I've spent a couple of decades in the sustainability field before it had a name and before it was mainstream. So first in the fair trade movement, helping companies trade more equitably and then inside large corporations like Mondelez and Nike and in the food and fashion sector, moving change within. I founded Illuminaris early this year. I advise companies on setting their ESG strategies if they don't have one already, and as well as coaching the ESG leaders within companies to action those strategies by themselves. Um, I'm also building a regenerative leadership curriculum and launching it in the fall, so watch that space. As I said, you very kindly moderated a number of sessions at the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in New York, which we held just about a week ago or so. Now, for me, Karima, it was a very different atmosphere from what we run in Europe. And given that you've worked in the space, I think you understand that we all recognize that the, the regulatory dynamics are different. But what were your overall headline takeaways from the conference? What was your feeling about how the conference went and what the kind of mood music was? First of all, it's important to note that I've been to a lot of your conferences in the food sector and not as many in the fashion sector. And it was really interesting to, to see the contrast, right? This event, the Innovation Forum format, and your brand is newer to the fashion sector in North America. And so there was a bit of trepidation in the pre-prep sessions around what is the Chatham House rules? Do we get canned questions that we can have canned answers to? I think ultimately all the panelists and participants found the candor and the depth of conversation very refreshing. I think 
it's more needed in the sector. So that was important. The fact that now this year, all conferences have been oversubscribed because people are very keen to meet each other in person, to have those side conversations, have the in-depth connection to learn from each other and move forward. I think that was a very important factor of the event. I think the key takeaways are circularity, scope three, and smaller companies. I think circularity to me is on everybody's minds. I think people are trying different models, but nobody's cracked the model yet. And yet we can't all be creating future garbage. Neither can we all be wearing the same mono material, mono color outfit throughout the world. So we need to figure that part out. And I still see companies grappling with that and, and needing to do more. I see that there's a lot more attention on scope three and upstream in general through traceability, through human rights work. That's actually really exciting. I also hope to see collaboration happen upstream in the fashion sector more. And the small but mighty, some of the, the best insights came from some small brands that are innovating in different ways that are changing the way that whole brand ethos is responding to the climate crisis and to inequality worldwide. I was really struck by one provocative set of comments from a former board director of a major apparel brand. I won't say who it was because we did it under the Chatham House rule. And he said, given all his years of experience, given the challenges of circularity, we're not going to go anywhere until the largest companies in the space start supporting regulation that raises the bar and creates a level playing field. I think he got a round of applause, if I remember rightly. Part of me was overjoyed to hear that because that's what's happening in Europe. It's, in my view, what's needed to create minimum standards. But secondly, I was surprised at the level of support in the room. What did you think of that conversation? I think regulation is always part of the solution, but it's only one part. There's also design innovation. You can only recycle what's recyclable, but if you keep adding bubbles onto your clothes, which we all like, and if you like colors and sparkles, those are not recyclable. You do need the companies to think through innovation and not just the largest companies, but all the, the various companies of all sizes. And then you need consumer behavior to also change. So I think there's a three-pronged approach needed. The biggest companies always drive more voice. We also have a bigger diversity of fashion companies that all need to focus on all three things. Absolutely. I'm not suggesting regulation is the answer to everything, but when we look at plastics and packaging, it looks like there are some clear models there where you might actually say incentives as much as regulation or even more than regulation can create change. If you think about the panels you moderated, are there any kind of themes and extra highlights, nuggets that you heard that perhaps you can share with us that you, you remember from the conference? I think a lot of the conversations were around data and how do you get to data for all the, the depths of regulation, all the variety of regulation that's coming, especially if you're a company that's both in North America and in Europe where the regulations are slightly differently worded and different enough that it needs very specific nuanced management. But what came out was that even before you get to the data for regulation for science-based targets is integration, right? How are companies actually integrating their sustainability work, their ESG work, their circularity work into the ethos and the culture of the company? How are they actually getting alignment and buy-in of the mainstream players? And I felt that some of the companies were definitely at an earlier stage and a ways to go. We're looking forward to taking the agenda forward next year. I recorded a number of other podcasts, listener, if you want to hear them, particularly one on the needed energy transition to renewables and supporting renewables for garment manufacturers in Southeast Asia. There's a couple of podcasts related to that 
on the stream. So have a look on your Innovation Forum podcast stream. You'll find those coming up soon. In the meantime, Karima, thank you so much for doing a wonderful job as moderator. Welcome back anytime. And thank you for your insights on the podcast. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for a new written post from regular contributor Tom Idle, discussing some of the benefits from agroforestry for the coffee sector in particular. The Monday Briefing is having a break next week, but the podcast will be back as usual. But that's it for now. I've been Dean Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.